Hey GeoTrekkers, welcome to GeoTrek podcast number 50, an in-depth look at emergency management with perspective on Hurricane Ian with Brandy Mai. Wow, we've made it to 50 podcasts. I know a lot of our GeoTrek family loves outdoor excursions and hiking, so I thought it'd be fitting to pause for a moment as if we're on a long hike together and assess our landscape. You know that feeling when you're on a long hike and you have not quite summited the mountain, but you found a nice little ridge to take a seat pull out an apple and enjoy the view. I wanted to do that here together as we start this new podcast. We've covered a lot of grounds in the first 50 episodes. We've explored Alaska together. We've looked into building better in hurricane country and heard the story about how Waffle House established a central role in disaster recovery. Last winter, we went north learning how to build stronger roofs in the snow belt and how to protect against brutal ice storms. In the spring, we chased wildfires and tornadoes on the plains and learned a lot about other severe weather hazards like straight line winds and hail. We spent a lot of time in Florida together where we learned about vulnerability to sea level rise, did a swamp hike in the Everglades, and learned about how telecommunications work in disaster zones. We've also chased a few hurricanes along the way. Last year, we recorded a podcast in the middle of Hurricane Ida in Houma, Louisiana, and this year we did the same in Hurricane Ian in southwest Florida. Both hurricanes made landfall as upper-level Cat 4 hurricanes along the Gulf Coast. We continue this week's podcast by diving deeper into Hurricane Ian, but from from a lens of emergency management, we'll investigate the importance of disaster communications before, during, and after catastrophes. I mentioned Homa, Louisiana in the intro here. Our guest is actually originally from there. It's Brandy Mai, a trauma-informed emergency management consultant who specializes in coordinating public information efforts during disaster and crisis operations. Her education includes a Juris Doctor from Mitchell Hamline School of Law, graduate coursework in strategic communications from Purdue University, a Bachelor of Journalism from Northwestern State University, military public affairs training from the Defense Information School, certification as an emergency manager, qualifications in civil and domestic mediation. Raised in South Louisiana, Brandy is an Army vet and mother of four. She serves as a guardian ad litem an advocate for veterans, children, mental health, and disabilities. Brandy is based in Savannah, Georgia. Hey, before we start our conversation with Brandy, a bit about the podcast, GeoTrek investigates the impacts of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Hey, before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask of you. We'd really appreciate if you'd take a minute to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Well, hey, make sure you have your thinking cap on for this episode. Brandy Mai is super sharp with topics like disaster communications, emergency management, and law, and she loves to question the status quo. So you definitely want to be thinking for this episode. It's going to be a thought-provoking episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Brandy, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. I'm so excited. I could hardly sleep last night. You're such a great communicator with with emergency management, all these disaster things. I just thought this is going to be a really great podcast. You're too kind. Thank you for having me. Brandy, so you have this interesting background in emergency management, but also law, right? So that it's like this multidimensional 
professional thing going on. How did your interest in those fields develop? And, and then like walk us through your journey to get into those fields. Well, I'll say if anybody looks at my LinkedIn profile and that is not a shameless plug, um, my career is kind of varied, um, but looking back on it, it, it makes sense. So um, it started, I was a, a public affairs, a photojournalist in the army way back when. And um, when I got out of the service, then I went into public relations, you know, I did some journalism, public relations, marketing. And then I started uh, maybe about, I don't know, 10 years ago, kind of getting an interest in specializing in crisis PR. And that was kind of around the rise of the internet, the interwebs and the 24 seven news cycle. And I started to develop um, a keen interest in that which led me to uh, being the lead public information officer for GEMA, which is Georgia's emergency management agency. So I was their lead PIO for a couple of years. Um, and that's where the love for emergency management really came in. Um, I think it probably drew on my military background that having a specific mission, having a duty, um, and then it merged you know, my communications background as well. Um, so while I was there, I, I took all the classes and learned as much as I could and became a, a certified emergency manager in Georgia. And fingers crossed in a few weeks, I'll have uh, the International um, Association of Emergency Managers designation of a CEM. Um, but when I got into emergency management, <clears throat> I've always had an interest in law and how it intersected with PR. Um, you know, lawyers and PR people are always your two people at the table when anything bad happens in the world. Um, but especially in disasters, I really saw how politics and law um, affected and, and changed or could change um, disaster response or what you could say or what you couldn't say. And at that point of my life, I was like, I am tired of fighting with lawyers. Be right back. I'm going to go become one. And so um, because I really wanted the knowledge. It wasn't so much about like, I want to be a lawyer so I can beat you. It was like, what? do they have that makes leaders and CEOs listen to them when I'm also on the other side of the table going, you can't do that. You can't say that. And I really wanted to understand that at a deeper level. Brady, how did you see this playing out with like lawyers involved with the conversations in emergency management, public relations at, at the state and local level? I mean, how did you see lawyers and the legal side coming into play? Um, words, I'll start with words first with, you know, I'm kind of a, a straightforward direct person. Um, you know, I'll, the first time I ever saw an elected official really do communication the way that I would want to do it was Rick Scott in hurricane, um, in hurricane Michael. And he was like, you need to leave. This storm will kill you. You need to go. And I was like, yes, that's how we should be communicating. But of course, legal and um, elected officials and leaders, you know, the whole gamut would be like, you can't say that. You have to just give them the information and tell them there's an evacuation and let them decide. And I was like, we need more risk communication. And when lawyers get involved, it's more public information. But if you kind of let emergency managers say what we really want to say, it's really more risk communication. And there's just kind of an intersect there that um, that happens behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see. Do you feel like that risk communication sometimes is more direct, more dire, you need to get out of harm's way, as opposed to maybe the legal conversations, which are like, wait, we have to be careful about every word we say. Yes, I think um, risk communications is a little bit more in depth than that. But I feel like there's a, a gap in 
yes, we're giving people the information, the forecast, the here's the evacuation order, but we're giving it to them very plainly. Um, and I really think that, that there needs to be an element of, if you are accepting this risk, these are the potential hazards. And just saying, turn around, don't drown, or don't drive through standing water, or using terms, and this is in your field house, how uh, storm surge, people don't know what that means. People need to see and, and hear stories um, or see photographs of, let's say, the, pre, the most recent memory, Hurricane Ian. God forbid, when the next storm comes, we need to show people what storm surge looks like and what risk they're accepting. Um, you know, either people don't have the capacity because information comes at them from a million different places, um, so they don't have the capacity to understand the risk, or um, they, they don't have the experience, they don't have the context that goes with it. And I, I feel like that's greatly missing. And it, it does keep me up at night sometimes because I, I feel like some people might not have suffered as greatly as they have if, if they had truly understood the risks that were in front of them. So Brandy, it sounds like you're saying the more accurate, vivid picture that we can paint for people, if you stay, this is what you're looking at as far as death and destruction, casualties, I mean, complete obliteration of the landscape is what we saw there in Southwest Florida and Hurricane Ian. You mean painting that a little clearer for people, like this is the risk you're accepting by staying may help people make a better informed decision. Yes, and I, you know, I'm saying that very directly. There are some considerations that I would put into that you know, I wouldn't just bombard people with 24 seven um, images of, you know, death and destruction. There, there's some trauma considerations there that need to be um, brought to the forefront. But yes, I do think that there are ways to incorporate um, those images or those stories um, at the right time to help people really understand. Um, but I also understand the, the time constraints, uh, these, um, rapidly intensifying storms that we're seeing in the last few years, there might not be time for a long drawn out campaign of, of, you know, selectively putting the right images at the right time. It's just risk comms. You need to go. The storm will kill you or can kill you. Brandy, the, the work that emergency managers do is so important for that. We, I think you mentioned in a conversation we had about the important work that broadcast meteorologists do as well. That may, What's their role? I mean, do they have the ability to maybe be more direct in some ways with some of these things because they're not government employees? Possibly. So, you know, way back in my career, I was a journalist um, and I did PR. So I've worked with lots of news stations um, and worked in lots of newsrooms. If their producers, editors, and their news company will let them, yes. Um, you know, it really, they also have bosses to answer to. But I think, you know, from an emergency management standpoint, we always tell people, um, you know, follow your local meteorologist. They are going to know what is predicted for your area. Pardon me. And, I, and so I think they are in a prime position, and they're the ones that people turn to, people are friends with, you know, the local communities know them and trust them. And so presuming that, you know, their newsrooms and their producers and, you know, their big corporate owners let them, yes, absolutely. 
Yeah, often they really do have a trusted voice. They have not only weather knowledge, but local weather knowledge of how this plays out in this urban area, in this coastal area, whatever it is. And often they do have a, a strong science background. They can maybe help walk us through some of these things as well. Brandy, on the, uh, getting back to emergency management, I know we have layers at the federal level, state level, local level. How are those different layers similar to each other and how are they different? So the National Incident Management System, you know, under FEMA has an incident command structure and that structure is scalable. It can be done for a small event, um, you know, that's just a few people or, you know, a very localized event, but it can scale up to something as large as Deepwater Horizon um, or, you know, Hurricane Michael or Hurricane Matthew. Um, and so the response and how the operations centers look are, and the functions that each division or branch or group plays, those are all pretty much the same. So I can walk into any EOC and understand how it's laid out if they follow that structure. So whether I'm walking into a, you know, a field office at FEMA that's responding, um, usually they embed in the state SOCs, but but I can walk into FEMA and understand how they're responding, or I can walk into a city or a county um, operations center and understand how they're operating. So it's very standardized and it's also scalable. Oh, that's interesting. So it, it sounds like it's repeatable. It's, it's basically, there, there's a standardized format to how this is structured, who's at the table, who's talking, and those are a lot of the similarities. What are some differences between them or, or do they, is it pretty much the same thing just repeated at different scales? So I'll give you a little anecdote here. When I first started working in emergency management, uh, I was naive to lots of things. And I had this presumption that, you know, at the city and the county level, you know, they did things a certain way. And then if the state got involved, oh, the state's in charge. And it was very, very fast. The biggest light bulb moment for me is that the larger that an incident gets, like if the state gets involved, the state activates, the state becomes a support function. Disasters are local. They start in local. And so the state, yes, they're you know providing resources and doing everything and they're following the ICS structure, but they become a support function for your localities and municipalities once uh, an incident or an event is so large that local infrastructure and resources can't support it. And so it was very fascinating for me to understand that it wasn't the state comes in to take charge, the state comes in to help. Oh, that's really interesting. I would have thought of it maybe like the state's coming over to take over. That's not what's happening. You're saying really the response is local. The state's saying we're there to support you. You may need additional resources. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the same with federal. You know, a lot of times your, your federal partners will deploy to a region um, or they'll deploy and embed, you know, with your state operations center, but they're there to help. They're not there to take over. They're there to okay, what do you, local emergency manager, what do you need? You need food and water and you need emergency shelters? Great, we will help you. And so it, it really is kind of like um, having a bunch of bodyguards, right? Um, I'm just using some Hollywood visual. It's like something gets so big, you can't do it. And then the heavies come in and they're like, we got you, we'll help. Yeah, they provide that support. And we've seen if you've been on the ground in a catastrophe, sometimes it's very clear there's no way just the local resources could handle all this. It's just overwhelming. Brandy, you've spoken about the six most dangerous words in emergency management communication. What are they and why is this so important? 
Um, so I think they're the six most dangerous words in any profession, but I like to bring them home a little bit. And they are, I'm going to use quotes, that's the way it's always been. Um, you know, it, there's processes, procedures, um, standard operating procedures, all those sorts of things. And they're very standardized and they're passed down, um, you know, from iteration to iteration, employees to employees. Um, and, and I understand that if it's not broken, don't fix it. I totally get that. But I think that when you have a mindset that prohibits you from maybe making your life a little easier or freeing up some capacity um, or this mindset that just dismisses any ideas coming your way with, well, that's the way we've always done it. I feel like that's a real disservice to your community and to your fellow employees. Brandy, how do you navigate that? I mean, that's so common. I heard that this last week. I was talking to some weather professionals about how we map hurricanes and this cone of uncertainty from the hurricane center, it shows the position of the eye. It implies to most people that's where the most dangerous part is. It actually, the eye, you can make an argument that's kind of the Western periphery of the impacts. The, the impacts go far outside to the right of the eye track. So we, there have been a lot of conversations lately about changing that. And I actually heard someone say, hey, for 75 years, that's how we've done it, right? So how do you navigate that when people say this is the way it's always been? So that's where I, that's, that's the area of fascination for me. I think it comes down to communication and I think it comes down to risk communication. Like, okay, that's the way it's always been, but let me tell you the risk that you're accepting and doing it that way. You have a hundred plus deaths or the potential for, you know, you start pulling data and statistics. You have the potential for lawsuits. You have the potential for this. So you know, once you start getting data and information that tells you, or people that are telling you, look, this is not working. Um, I think you need to remove, that's the way it's always been from any conversation or even from your mindset. And I, I really think that leaders um, and people in general need to make space for those new ideas because the practitioners on the ground, they're the ones that are that can tell you exactly how to do it the best way, the most efficient way. Um, listen to them. It might not roll up into something that works well at a higher level, but creating that, that inclusive space for people to bring their ideas has value. And, and in our profession, that value can save lives and resources. I imagine if you have well-defined goals as well, if your goal is to save as many lives as possible, right? Showing the position of the hurricane eye may not be as target on with your goals as showing the storm surge inundation map, right? So, I mean, it comes down to maybe if we have well-defined goals and say, okay, how do we get to those goals? Maybe then that's kind of a backdoor way we can say, okay, we, we want to make some change, but not just for the sake of making change, but to reach our goals of saving lives. Randy, we're watching Hurricane Ian come in. It's 2022. We have so much technology. We have the technology to see clouds coming off the coast of Africa now. We don't get blindsided in the same way we did 100 years ago from these hurricanes that, that came. 1989 in the middle of yeah. the that's, well, that, that, that was, I think the satellites were down that night. There was some, some night there was, there was a family. Uh, uh, we, we saw their boat on the satellite trying to trying to get to safety. But in general, we have so much information. We expect we're not going to be blindsided as much. And here we have Hurricane Ian, where it looks like we have more than 100 deaths. I mean, walk us through what's been going through your mind with that. It seems like it was a natural catastrophe. Now there's been a lot of talk about was it handled 
well, from a response perspective, I mean, what, this is your area of expertise. I mean, what are your thoughts as you saw this storm? Do you see any maybe changes coming out of this? Uh, just share your thoughts with us. Sure. My thoughts are wide and vast. Um, I'm going to put a couple of disclaimers in there, um, which is I haven't dug very deeply into policies and laws and regulations. I'm really looking at it from a lens of what I'm seeing online, and not just news media, but also um, survivors, their social media posts, local meteorologists. Sure. Um, uh, so I haven't dug in too deeply, but from the 30,000 foot view, um, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of things at play. Um, I think they're, you know, a, a rapid intensification of a storm. Sure. Um, I think, you know, maybe not understanding full risk. Um, you and I have talked about this previously. There's also some psychological um, considerations in communication which are anchoring, which is people kind of hold on to the first bit of outlier information that they hear. So in the beginning of this storm, um, you know, and this is not absolute, this is just what I saw. Most people saw Tampa and everything else just didn't compute. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't a lot of time to keep checking. It was just Tampa, Tampa, you know, and here's this cone of uncertainty making people think this is where the storm is going to hit when really that's just the eye. It does not show the magnitude of the winds and the wind field and yep. the flooding and the rain and all the water it's going to pick up, you know, out in the Gulf before it gets there. Um, and I, so I think there's a lot of elements that go into it. Uh, lack of time, anchoring, the other psychological kind of um, term is milling effect. And that's kind of the old school, like, hey, man, did you hear there's a storm coming? What are you going to do? Are you staying? Are you leaving? Well, that all happens online that happens in Facebook groups or texts or things like that. But nobody's gonna hear an emergency manager go, get out and then leave. They're gonna ask their friends and see what the other people's opinions are. You know, maybe call their local TV station. You know, people are gonna, which is good. We want people to do due diligence and, and question things and learn and get context. But there's a time where it's like, you don't have any time left, you need to go. Brandy, it sounds like you're saying people prefer to have this time to process where they, they hear the evacuation order, they call their grandma, they call their friends, they start, if, if eight out of 10 of their social network is leaving, they're maybe going to leave. If one out of 10 is leaving, maybe they won't. It's just this sense that we're more connected than we may realize to the feedback from others in our community. But it also sounds like you're saying in a storm like this, where the track was quite uncertain and it shifted quite a bit toward the end and came in really fast, maybe people didn't have as much time for all that milling to take place. The storm was on their doorstep and they needed to take action. Sure. And, you know, there's lots of legal, if you would, um, or policy considerations in that too, Hal. So for instance, if there is not a mandatory evacuation order, and I don't know the laws of Florida, I'm speaking in generalities here, but in most places, if there is not a mandatory evacuation order and you choose to evacuate, <clears throat> your job doesn't necessarily have to hold your job for you. So if your boss says, <clears throat> nope, you got to come into work, it's not a mandatory evacuation, nobody's going it, to, it's rare you're going to find somebody that goes, okay, I can lose my job over this. You know, they need that economic stability, they need a job. And so if the leaders don't issue those kind of orders and, and make those decisions, then it becomes a lot more complicated for people to even do the logistics in their own lives in order to leave. 
Brandy, I pulled into Southwest Florida the day before landfall. I had 10 days food, 10 days water, all this extra gasoline. I anticipated a ghost town. I come in and it's just completely fully functioning. Publix was open till 6 p.m. the day before landfall. If you're a cashier, are you going to say, sorry, y'all, I'm leaving? That, you know, the massage parlors, the the uh, barber shops, the swimming swimming pool supply company. All, I was going down the strip mall just looking at all of these businesses, all of them open. So, again, that, that makes a hard case for people to say defy their employer and say, sorry, even though it's not mandatory, even though things are open, I'm leaving anyway. Right. It, it does make it very difficult. And, you know, if schools don't close, you know, people have lots of dynamics in their lives, you know, work, school, family members, family members in the hospital, you know, there's lots of dynamics at play in each individual person's life. People might not have money in the bank to travel, um, you, you know, for an evacuation that may, you know, for a storm that may or may not hit. And, uh, you know, if you don't have the leaders telling you, like, get out, you need to leave, then you kind of make that presumption that everything's okay. Conversely, coming out of two years of COVID response, which is, um, we, you don't have enough podcast hours for that conversation, but people also are a little gun shy. You know, there were parts of COVID, you know, where people are like, oh my God, you got to leave or you're going to die. And, and rightfully so. There was some science out there at certain times that made those really big announcements relevant. But, you know, if people survived all that and survived previous storms, then it's kind of like the boy crying wolf. And so, you know, there's just lots of psychological and community trauma things at play. I see where people may say, look, the authorities, the media, they're always, everything's always the end of the world. We're going to be fine. We've ridden out all these storms. We've ridden out the pandemic. We've learned to just not listen to the authorities or the media. And all of a sudden, it, it, it makes it complex for a case like this where a 12-foot storm surge is just going to rip apart a city. You know, this is, is it's going to be a, a dire thing. Brandy, could you walk us through, in general terms, why may a county or a local entity delay an evacuation order? I mean, why not just order this way out in front? It, just in general terms, what are the incentives to waiting a little bit longer? Sure. Um, and this is not all-inclusive. And again, this is not specific to any county. You know, it each... However, the state is structured, each county or municipality or state laws kind of govern all of it. But there's a couple of things at play. One, it kind of depends on your city or county charter. Um, one thing that really stuck out to me um, in, I, I won't name counties, um, in one of the counties in Florida is that their emergency operations plan had a very specific um, evacuation triggers, which is not a bad thing. As emergency managers, I'm like, yes, if this, then this, great, nobody gets to fight about it. Um, and maybe they didn't follow those, or I, again, I didn't read them. Um, so you might have binding documents that prevent those sorts of things. Um, you also have, <clears throat> let's say you have two counties side by side. One county's like, well, we're going to do a mandatory evacuation. And the other county's like, we're not. <clears throat> then you, you have conflicting information. And so that or you know so sometimes it's kind of like well what's my friend over there in xyz county gonna do you know then and county managers and states know that as soon as you issue an evacuation order some other county is going to get your people and their infrastructure is going to be burdened and so it's kind sure. of a 
you know, kind of a, a conversation that has to be had, like, hey, just let you know, uh, a bunch of people are heading your way. Um, but you also have cost. <clears throat> so disaster funding, federal funding for a federally declared disaster, all of that funding comes after and state, you know, funds for disaster. Um, all of the money comes after. Um, you know, they might do a state of emergency beforehand, but that just means, hey, we agree that you can use whatever resources you need over time for public safety, whatever, that checkbook is open as you need it. But the money comes after. Um, if there's not a state of emergency or a declared disaster, then the county or, you know, the local municipality oftentimes is on the hook for that expense. So it's like, we can activate a bunch of people, we can tell people to evacuate, we can shut down businesses and take the economic impact. But if that storm turns, we're on the hook for all of that overtime pay for all of those resources for the economic impacts. And so it's there, it's very valid that there might be like a, well, do we want to risk $10 million in losses? just in case the storm might not hit us or get weakened. And so it's kind of a, you're sitting there hedging bets. It seems like a delicate balancing act if you're on the edge of those potential hurricane tracks, right? Where you're saying, well, if this does turn and we did a mandatory evac, we shut down the government offices, we opened up shelters, we're paying police overtime because we have curfews. I mean, there are all these different expenses that comes into play. You're saying if the storm turns and you never really got strong winds or flooding, you may not be part of that disaster declaration post-storm and not get reimbursed for it. You might be out a lot of money. You might be out, you know, individual assistance money, hazard mitigation grant program money, public assistance money, um, you know, and a lot of times states will do um, you know, state governments will do states of emergency so that the state can maybe be on the hook for some of that. But, sure. you know, it's, it's not a, a full refund. And it depends on so many different factors there. But holistically looking at it, yes, it, it's, do we, do we want to be on the hook? Do our taxpayers want to be on the hook? Sure. You know, for, and there's also the consideration of if we cry wolf again and the storm turns, then people aren't going to listen to us next time. Well, that's that's true, too. We really have to think about that next storm. I've heard people say just just do a really broad evacuation, go way beyond the border and just err on the side of caution. I get that. But if you've lived in these vulnerable places, if, if your residents feel like they've unnecessarily evacuated two or three times, it gets really hard to evacuate them next time when they maybe really need to. Absolutely. I'm not sure if it was you or if it was another colleague of mine that told me that um, there was there was a lady they spoke to during Ian that had evacuated for three or four previous storms and decided this time was like I, I'm just staying and. Yep. This was a a British woman I talked to. She had been there 31 years. She said she has evacuated for all the storms and she's just sick of it. She's tired of it. Again, it, it, in her perception, each evacuation was unnecessary. This time the water came up so fast she panicked. Her friend down the street had a two-story house. She had a one-story house. She swam in the rapidly moving four feet, you know, four feet of water, but it's moving rapidly. This isn't like a swimming pool. This is like a river. And she actually made it to her friend's house and survived. But you hear these stories where people panic and they, they die trying to swim somewhere, to go somewhere. So, but she had obeyed all these other evacuation orders. So it does get tricky. I mean, these are complex 
stories. And this brings me back to uh, one of the last questions I want to ask you. A common concern I hear of residents is saying, if I evacuate, I won't be allowed back in. And there are a couple reasons why people want to get back in quickly. Number one, they may feel like burglars may come and loot their property. They may feel like if I do flood, I want to get on treating that flood, that my, my building, my house right away before mold and mildew sets in. I don't want authorities setting up a perimeter saying I can't go into my own house for a week. I can understand from emergency management perspective, there's often a statistic that sometimes more people die from the indirect impacts from a storm. They get electrocuted. They, uh, all, these, all these other things, animal bites, carbon monoxide poisoning from generators. A disaster zone, even after the storm, is still a very dangerous place. Um, how do we balance that out? How do we think about this? I, I can understand both sides of it. Uh, walk us through maybe even how a long restriction of not allowing people back in may discourage them from evacuating in the future. Sure. Um, it's no surprise that my whole career has been communicating. <laughs> so, you know, to me, it seems like, uh, you know, the start to the resolution for this is to have these conversations with the residents to, um, you know, when I worked in the state operations center in Georgia, we had, you know, we worked Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Michael, and we got lots of the calls at the state operations center, people saying, I want to go back to my house. And, and here's why, and listed all of the things you just said. But when we would explain to them, when we would just take that moment on the telephone as they're calling in and say, listen, we understand that you want to get home. We, we, we totally empathize. Um, but right now, if we let you back in, like we can't keep you safe. We cannot keep your family safe. And there's no electricity. We don't have the means to get food in to feed you if all of your food has spoiled. Um, if you are in a car accident or have a heart attack while you're back in there, we don't have the ambulances or the hospitals up and running to take care of you. And as soon as we would say that, they would go, oh, well, that makes sense. And again, not every time, but as soon as it was explained in a way, and you know, I, I, a lot of people always call me kind of like the communication chameleon, um, even right down to dialect and accents. Whoever I'm talking to on the phone, within like a minute, I will be using their dialect and accent. And so I really kind of chameleon and mimic and mirror being one of them, um, even using their accents and, and dialects and just explaining it to them in a way matching their vocabulary and their language, you can't do that on social media. You can't do that in a press conference, you know, you, and so, but that's a big lift. Having those conversations at the right time is a heavy lift. So, and you know, it's no surprise that government agencies are short staffed and have other pressing missions, but I think conversations need to happen on blue sky days um, or, you know, anytime really, but those conversations need to happen so that people understand, like, we're not just being mean. We're not just like, nope, you can't get back in. We're busy. It's genuinely like we're tasked with keeping you alive. And there are real risks inside of that barricade that we can't protect you from. 
You know, Brandy, something I really got from your perception today is when the storm's coming, paint for them what that storm situation looks like with meteorological conditions, but also after the storm, you're not going to have electricity. You're going to be in a hot, dark house. You're not going to have plumbing, right? That's something that people just assume they flush their toilet. It works. Their, their kitchen sink works. You may, may not have that for a long time. And like you said, there's no, there's a curfew. There's, there's no way to provide any emergency services. Maybe painting a picture of this is what this actually looks like. Some people really struggle to grasp the long-term recovery. Like this may be weeks or months until these services are restored. Uh, maybe walking them through what it looks like can help. When I first came into emergency management um, and well, I'd say maybe the last five to 10 years, um, there's been a shift. They don't know exactly when it happened, but it used to be like, okay, if you're going to ride out a storm, have three days worth of food, um, <clears throat> you know, make sure that you have battery packs for three days worth of cell phone charge, like three to five days was kind of the magic number. And now I've seen a shift to be prepared to live completely on your own for a week or two or longer. And, and I, so, and I don't know that, 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 messaging has been around long enough for it to really permeate people's understanding and mindset. They're like, oh, I've got some cans of food. You know, we'll be out of power for a couple of days. I'll take some naps. No, this is like, all of your food is going to spoil. Um, you know, your toilets may back up, which becomes a public health crisis and sewage wise. Um, you know, your public safety and ambulances may not be running. So Let's just say you're out back chopping wood for a fire and you, you know, slice the ax through your foot. You're kind of on your, you know, there's so many just normal everyday life things that can happen that 911 and public infrastructure cannot support. Yeah, these layers, these safety nets that we're so used to just assuming that they're there, they're not there in a time like this. There was a one of our podcast guests on the last podcast went into Fort Myers Beach the morning after Ian, there were people, a lot of dead people, a lot of people severely injured. There were people actively looting and ransacking. And his thing was like, where was law enforcement? You, you can make the argument, look, they, they said this is a mandatory evacuation and they can't put their people at harm's way. So it's just, it can be this really chaotic scene. I wonder if painting the picture of what this looks like post-storm may help people evacuate pre-storm because sometimes people will ride out a life-threatening storm barely survive and now they're like well now it's unlivable they're going to evacuate anyway right so why not leave a day or two before and make sure that you save your life you know um, so many i always used to kind of joke you know and say if we could just live stream an emergency operations center or a state operations center no necessarily audio would be needed but if you could see like a bunch of people walking around doing stuff, working. If you could see that energy on like a live feed, if you would, I think people would understand it better because you know you have some weather folks that might be out standing in the storm, which subconsciously gives this notion that hey, we can stand in the storm, it's fine. This dude's good, and his you know his video guy's good, so we're just gonna go out there. Um, or you might see a press conference, which is well curated and, you know, well programmed and scripted. If you could see, and it's not chaos, it's organized chaos. It looks like an ant farm or an ant pile that, you know, everybody's working to bring food to the queen or something. But if you could see that energy, it's, it's probably one of the, 
the most profound, I just got chills thinking about the most profound things to see is all of these people just descending on one place with one mission. Everybody knows what to do and where to go. All politics, all everything is aside and everybody is there. But I really feel like if the people, if the citizens could see that kind of energy, they might understand the um, the level of of danger that's there, and and it might re- restore some faith in public safety professionals. For sure, friends and colleagues of mine that have worked at EOCs, they'll talk about these long hours, but there's this energy, there's this adrenaline. Everyone's working together. That's a great idea to have a little cam in the corner, maybe with audio on mute, but just to show like people are doing their best to respond, but it's overwhelming, right? When you have a lot of your city completely annihilated, how do you respond timely? It's just moment by moment making the optimal choices. But to see that energy, to see local, state, and federal resources are being thrown at this may help uh, encourage people along the way. Absolutely. And, you know, and the the almost lawyer side of me is like, oh my God, like what would that look like? Somebody would be like, oh, that guy walked across the room. He wasn't trying to say, um, but I really feel like, you know, one of the things that I've told people during disasters and COVID, I said, look, I understand that everybody's tired of listening to elected officials and leaders and, and all of, and, and big media and all of this other stuff. I was like, and that's fine if you don't trust them. Cause I don't trust any of them either. Um, I said, but do you trust me? And they'll go, yes, you know, except for my family back in Ida. Do you trust me? Do you trust that I trust the people working on the side of me? That I am there just as much for them and they're there for me. Do you trust the little people? And they'll go, you know, the people that are like you, the blue collar workers, like, do you trust me? I'm nobody. And they'll go, yes. And I'll go, great. Because we're the people that are actually working the storm. So, you know, just have your trust in the little people and, you know, I'm not telling you to ignore the big people, but just know there's little people like us, hundreds of us that are working really hard to save your life. Yeah. And as you're building those relationships, like you, I like the term you use, blue sky days, right? You're using those workshops and the, those engagement times, maybe in February, March, April, to build engagement that you may need during flood season or hurricane season as those relationships and trust are built. I like what you're saying that you can reach out to the community as they build trust in you. They can trust, okay, you're connected with people maybe at the state and federal level, they're not, but it's, it's, you're almost a link in a sense, linking those people in the community to all these different resources at different levels. Absolutely. Brandy, thank you so much for this insightful interview. We covered a lot of topics from a lot of different angles. And so this was a really interesting conversation. We got a lot out of it. Here are a few of my main points that I walked away with personally. Number one, I hear people often say, who cares if we have a mandatory evacuation or not? People just need to make up their own minds and not wait for the government to tell them what to do. While personal responsibility in disaster zones is paramount, Brandy makes a good point that people may not be willing to leave if their employer requires them to work. And their employer is much more likely to require them to work if there is not a mandatory evacuation. I saw this firsthand when I got to West Central Florida the day before Hurricane Ian arrived. A lot of businesses were open. I was shocked to see society functioning at such a high capacity. And it made me think of the employees of these businesses. Are they really willing to tell their employer, hey, I know you want me at work. 
I know you're trying to operate and stay open, but I'm going to choose to leave with my family. I think, as Brandy mentioned, that's much less likely than if businesses closed down before a disaster. And she had made the point that mandatory evacuations tie into a lot of those businesses' decisions, whether to stay open or to close. Really insightful stuff there. Number two, I really liked what Brandy shared about the most dangerous words in any profession. That's the way it's always been. She really shared about how you know, the, the status quo can have so much gravity to it, right? It can pull us towards it. And a lot of people just operate out of this framework of just doing things the way they've always been done. And that's, that's really a dangerous thing. We should always try to find optimal path forward to reach our goals and not necessarily be stuck in doing things the way they've always been done. Again, in the days after Hurricane Ian, there's been a lot of conversation about reevaluating how we forecast and map hurricane hazards. Like we often use this cone of uncertainty to show the position of the hurricane eye. I had a conversation with a meteorologist last week who said, you know, for 75 years, this is the way we've done it. He wasn't saying necessarily we should or shouldn't do it, but he was making the point that this is the way it's always been done. And there's no better time than right now after a big disaster to reevaluate how we how we do things, how we choose to evaluate risk and communicate that. Now is a great time to reevaluate all of those disaster risk and communication products. And the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast, number 51, will fi- focus specifically on this topic. Number three, and, and the last point I wanted to reflect on was the uh, the take-home point of Brandy's wisdom about painting a picture of a disaster landscape for residents in clear, graphic, and sometimes vivid terms to really give them a, an idea of what they're facing if they choose not to evacuate. Many people do not realize the potential severity for natural disasters. They may think, hey, I've survived hurricanes before. This one's going to be like the other ones. But what they're facing, especially if they're in an area that receives a massive storm surge, it may be something beyond what they can even imagine. Painting that picture of what that looks like in very clear terms can help them get an idea and and be better aligned with reality. Brandy also mentioned painting those pictures for people about what it will look like after the disaster, right? So people may think, okay, the worst case scenario, I'm going to lose power for a couple days. But we know in these mega disasters, when you really are in the ground zero for a tornado outbreak or hurricane storm surge, things like that, you can lose services for weeks to months. Power could be out for that long. You could lose your water and your sewage and plumbing and all of those types of things that we rely on for for a normal everyday life, maybe knocked out for weeks to months, but that may be beyond the the framework and the scope of what people are imagining. I have definitely come across people who said they, they risked their lives, they barely survived a natural disaster. And then after the storm, they've decided to evacuate anyway because all of these services were wa- were knocked out. Pretty much their town was unlivable. And so if you're going to evacuate anyway, why not leave before the storm instead of risking your life? And then you're going to be in an unlivable place anyway. Brandy, thank you so much for taking time to share your wisdom with us. We're excited to follow your career moving forward. You're doing so many interesting things. I know you're uh, you're commonly on social media. Your Twitter handle is Crisis Talker. So just do at Crisis Talker for our listeners if you want to follow Brandy online. She often is engaged in very interesting conversations. I know, for example, on Twitter. 
Hey, if our listeners have questions for us about the physical processes or impacts of extreme weather or natural disasters, please reach out to us and let us hear about it. We're keeping our tradition of making the double digit podcast episodes interactive. And episode 55 is right around the corner. For that episode, we're going to be taking your questions about this past hurricane season. So this could be about the meteorology involved. It was a bit of a strange season that was very quiet for long periods of time. Then we have this very destructive hurricane in late September in Southwest. Florida. Any questions you have about about meteorology, risk communication, uh, the impacts of these storms, whatever's on your mind, reach out to us and we'd love to address those questions in podcast number 55, which will be coming up in the month of November. Our production and marketing team is Seneth Baker, Ashley Anderson, Jeremiah Long, Christopher Cook, Amy Wilkins, and I am Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for taking time to listen. We'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.